0: Susie Bauer formerly wrote and directed TV programmes for children at the BBC and Channel 4, for which she won a BAFTA award. Her debut middle grade novel, School for Nobodies, was long listed for the Bath Children's Novel Award in 2020. Her latest book, The Three Impossibles, is a fast moving fairy tale fantasy quest, and Susie spoke recently to Nikki Gamble, who asked her to set up the story for us. I begin the novel with a quote from Michael Rosen. Um, And he said, be curious is the best advice I've ever been given. It came from my my dad. He also said, be bold. I think that was quite useful. So Mim, or Princess Jemima, is, is both curious and bold. She has what she calls an inquiring mind, although her gloomy governess, Foggy, calls her nosy. She's also bright and determined, but she lives in a house of secrets. That's such a good opening. And I love that you started with uh,
1: the first of your epigraphs there. And curiosity, uh, it's a really good place to start. So, Mim, uh, um, as you said, she has an inquiring mind. The place that she's happiest is the library.
0: You should describe that library to us because it. she can't quite read everything. Yes, it is her favourite place. Um, She says that it smells interesting and some places just do smell interesting. It's a big tower. Um, It's completely circular. And she feels as if when she's standing at the bottom of it and looking up at the glass ceiling, it's like she's in an upside down telescope. And all of the walls going round and round and up and up are lined with books. And the A's are at the very, very top and they work all the way down to the X, Y, and Zs at the bottom. And because Mim is only 11 and she's not very tall, she's only really been able to read the books up as far as Y, and she only can reach a few of the Ys. So she knows a lot about zombies and vampires, but she doesn't know anything about the books further up. And it's her greatest wish that she can climb up one day somehow and get to read the other books.
1: Yeah, She's a lonely girl brought up by a rather dispossessing governess, uh, who she calls Foggy, Miss Fogarty. But perhaps we should say something about why she's so lonely. Uh, The story starts on the winter solstice, December the 21st. It's called Curse Day. Why is it Curse Day?
0: Because 11 years ago, on the day of Mim's birth, a curse was cast on her family. She doesn't know about it. She only knows that the day is called the catastrophic day of the curse or the day of the catastrophic curse. Um, nobody will answer her questions about it, and that's another of her huge wishes in life. She wants to find out what happened, who laid the curse, what is the curse, what happened.
1: Mm, I do love the way that she's always going around saying, "I well, I've got an inquiring mind." She said to everybody. Uh, I suppose we'd call her an autodidact. Uh, she's educating herself because her governess isn't doing it really in fact there's a wonderful bit where she talks about the education that she's getting from her governess and it's pretty dull stuff I wondered whether when you were at school you had an education that invited curiosity and were you a curious child
0: My education was very patchy because I lived in eight different houses and I went to seven different schools before the age of 13. So I never followed one direct curriculum through, basically. And I guess what always attracted my 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 curious side was the arts. I love to dance, I love to write, I love to uh, paint and draw. And that's all stayed with me, even in till my advanced age now. Mm, mm. And I also think that if your curiosity is nurtured, um, it's a bit like a plant. If it's given a good environment, then it will flourish and you'll want to find out more and more and more. If you are in a position where people are not encouraging you or even actively discouraging you, then you're likely, your curiosity is likely to fade. Mm. So it's very lucky for Mim in in the story that she does have one friend at the beginning of, of the story, which is Smith, the blacksmith. And he encourages her to learn all about blacksmithing. And he's a very wise person. And she also knows she's loved by him. So she does have one tiny area of her life, which is actually positive and constructive.
1: You talked a bit about your curiosities that you had when you were a child. I wonder As you've kind of grown and and matured, whether some of those things that didn't appeal to you at school, whether you found interest in them in
0: later life or not. I think that I've learned how to deal with the things that don't come naturally to me. For example, talking to somebody on a screen doesn't come at all naturally to me. And I find that quite quite challenging. But I know that it's something that I need to do and to learn. Um, And it does round you out as a person. And sometimes we find
1: so many more connections than we realise when we were children, I think, where things are put into pockets of knowledge for us. And then we grow up and we realise that perhaps the world isn't always organised in those nice, neat pockets. And I noticed from looking at your biography, you've had what might be called a serendipitous approach to
0: the kinds of work that you've done. I've always been a sort of wanderer and I, I guess it's because of moving so much when I was young. So I, I wander in the same way from career to career in a way, I guess. And, and I've done a lot of different things. and. I guess, again, I've just kind of followed my instinct with each one. Sometimes I, as you say, it's been serendipitous and the doors have opened. Um, sometimes, and this takes me back to your previous question I've had to learn against my natural inclinations um, how to do things so I used to work for the BBC I went in as a copy typist in the newsroom and then worked my way up very very gradually and I had to learn tenacity and I had to learn a lot of skills that again didn't come naturally to me like becoming a floor manager in news which is absolutely my worst nightmare. <laughs> I was the worst floor manager in the entire universe. And my midriff appeared behind Sue Lawley while she was reading the news one day. (laughs) So, yes, um, I've wandered from from career to career. But I think each one has been a new door opening and a new way of, of learning skills, which I wouldn't otherwise have done. And I guess I came into writing. Well, I've always written and I've always loved writing. But... Things never really took off for me until probably the last five years. I had written a novel for adults back in 2012 um, with a small press. And since then, I hadn't really kind of done much at all. But then I took a wonderful course with Louise Dean at the Novelry uh, called The Classics Course, which was all about children's literature. And for me, it was a complete eye opener as soon as I began the course Everything fell into place and the words just flooded out. It was like stepping through the wardrobe into Narnia. It really was. Mm,
1: wonderful. It's so nice when that happens and you you feel that you find your home in some, some respects. Um, I should take us back into the story, having gone through that little detour there. And I think before we get to the quest and what the three impossibles are of your title, We encounter the villain of the piece uh, because actually Mim's rather uninspiring education with uh, Miss Pogarty isn't producing the results and turning her into the ideal princess. So the king, her father, has a plan.
0: Yes, Mim's father wants her to be basically the perfect princess, everything that Mim naturally isn't. Um, And because Foggy has, in his his eyes, let Mim down, um, he decides to take on Madame Marionette, although he has some ulterior motive as well because he fancies her a lot. Um, She's a very glamorous looking woman. She appears to be French, but in fact it's a completely fake accent. And she is cruel. She is just downright cruel. She likes to have dead things around her, as she puts it. And basically, she is a very life-denying person. She's the counterpoint to Smith, really. He likes life.
1: She likes death. She collects dead animals. All her clothes are made out of dead animals. And she's surrounded by the colour red everything is red. Her room is red. Her fingernails are red. And so you're left with this image of just this vibrant colour. Red is such an interesting symbolic colour. It means so many different things. When you were picturing her, what was red associated with for you? I
0: guess, although I haven't thought about this particularly consciously, red came to me and, and it just felt right. But I think that for me, red is warning. Mm. danger. It's also passion, which is kind of what's happening between her and the king, apparently. But mainly it's, you know, keep away from this. You don't want to get too close to this thing because it could be very, very dangerous. Mm. I'd love to hear the piece of the story
1: where you introduce Madam Marriott. Okay,
0: so here it is. Um, It's called The First Lesson. This is the chapter when Mim meets Madame Marionette, who is actually living down in the dungeons, which have all been painted red. I wake with a start to the sound of the bell tolling nine. It's Christmas Eve, and all I've got to look forward to is my first lesson with Madame Marionette. There are only moments to throw on my dress, shoes and crown and race along the corridor and down the stone steps to the dungeons. I knock. No answer. No answer. Maybe Madame's in her dressing room and hasn't heard me. I knock again, louder. Then I push open the door and walk into the red, half-dark room and freeze. Eyes stare at me from every corner. A monkey dressed in a red coat perches on a red chair, clutching a banana. Underneath the chair, a snake coils, its jaws open, ready to strike. A tiger crouches by the fireplace, its yellow eyes fixed on me. A grizzly bear rears up on hind legs. Something growls deep and harsh. In slow motion, I back towards the door. Arrete! Madame Marionette steps out of the shadows. She wears a cape made of rusty red feathers and pointy red shoes. A fox's head hangs around her neck, its dull, brushed tail falling over her shoulder. Her brooch seems to be made of coiled human hair. She smiles her cruel smile and waves her long, sharp fingernails at the animals. My little connection, she says. Look, if you wish. And then I see that all the animals are dead, stuffed. I walk among them, my knees trembling. Puma crouches like a black shadow. A tarantula spider with thick hairy legs sits on a table. Rows of dead butterflies, their bright wings stiff and dusty, are pinned in lines on the red walls. On the mantelpiece sits a row of birds' eggs, each with a tiny hole. Someone has sucked out the baby birds before they can be hatched. Stuffed nightingales are mounted on twigs, their beaks open, only they will never sing again. My little pets, says Madame Marionette. I feel sick. Pets? But they aren't alive. I like to have dead things about me. A fat handbag made of crocodile skin gapes open on the table. Something in the room smells metallic and hot, like blood. I take a step backwards and Madame Marionette points at me with a red fingernail. Stop and stand still. She walks over to me and bends down so that our faces are on a level. You will learn, Jemima, to obey me. Or, like these creatures, you will suffer the consequences. What do you mean by that? My voice sounds braver than I feel. When creatures do not obey me, I become bored. She waves a hand at the stuffed animals. Poof, they cannot bore me now. I shiver. She can't have me stuffed, can she? Father would never allow it, would he? Attention, snaps Madame Marionette. We shall now commence our lessons, starting with deportement. Is that even a French word? Something about the way Madame speaks feels sort of wrong, only I can't work out what it is. She reaches into her crocodile skin handbag, pulls out a thick red book and hands it to me. It's heavy as lead. I turn it over to look at the title. Maybe it's about something interesting. But the title reads in curly letters, The Education and Instruction of Princesses. Mm -hmm. Before I can open it, Madame points her sharp fingernail at my head. Take off your crown. Now balance the book upon your head. What? Are you deaf? Madam raises her voice. Balance this book upon your head. The book's even heavier than the crown. It slips off my curls immediately. I just manage to catch it as it falls. Again. The book teeters on the top of my head. I stand as still as I can, my neck stretched up, and try not to breathe. Madame Marionette points at my feet. Now, walk. In slow motion, I take a step forward. This is impossible. The book seesaws straight on the back, chin up, shoulders down, snaps Madame Marionette. A princess does not slouch. She walks with her head held high. I stop and glare at her. The book slides off my head. You can't order me about. Madame's eyes narrow. Watch me, little girl.
1: Mm. She's a villainess in the vein of the white Witch from Narnia and the queen from Snow White. There's no redemption for her whatsoever. None. (laughs) And I have to say, the king was the one that annoyed me the most. But goodness sake, you stupid man. (laughs) Anyway, while we're talking about fairy tales and mythology, there are two mythic creatures that are part of this story as well. One set is the Myrrh people. And of course, they have a very long provenance, both in fairy story and in mythology as well. Uh, tell us a little bit about your mer people and whether
0: you were drawing on any of those older stories. Well, my meres are probably nothing like the mer people in most fairy stories. Traditional mermaids and mermen do um, act as sirens, and they do sing sailors to their deaths so there is a very nasty side to them potentially but I think a lot of contemporary mermaid stories tend to make mermaids very kind of cute creatures and these certainly are not cute they aren't male or female Um, they are beings which live in the ocean they are greedy they are attracted to precious things Um, Mim has a brooch, which Smith gave her, and they uh, try to steal it from her. They don't have hearts. They literally don't have hearts in their bodies. Um, So they act completely heartlessly and kind of mindlessly as well. They simply want to get what they want. And there's a real sense of threat
1: from them. There are a number of instances where Mim uh, comes across them. There's one, which I won't say exactly what's happening in the story, but where she has to cross the sea on a rocky Path and they're just waiting there with these moon-like white faces and sharp teeth under the water, waiting to just waiting to grab her ankles. And a lighthouse beam is shining across this path, and she feels that she's safe while the light is shining because they do not like the light. But there's this real sense of jeopardy that that light could at any moment be extinguished, and what will happen then?
0: Absolutely, yes. The Mer people, I guess in a symbolic way, they are so dark and so dreadful that light is their only true enemy. And the alchemist who she meets later in the story, Trismegistus McWhisker, is up in the lighthouse. He is very kindly shining the light onto the water for her. Um, However, things go rather wrong after that. Mm. The other group,
1: I didn't know whether this was purely out of your imagination or whether it did relate to other mythical creatures. You call them the wings and they're like part human, part black bird of some kind. So tell us a
0: little bit about them. Okay, so the Wings are a tribe of bird-like creatures. They live at the very top of a great big, jagged, lonely mountain called Black Mountain. And they are a very proud and haughty race. They don't want to have anything to do with humans if they can help it. The king of the Wings has a son called Sky, and Sky has been captured by Madame Marionette and imprisoned in a cage in the library. So Smith has been forced to hang the cage high up out of Mim's reach in the library. And Prince Sky is confined to this cage and he is absolutely furious about it.
1: Mm. I don't want to say too much about how the story unravels and resolves, but I will come to the title because it's called The Three Impossibles. And the quest element of this story is around these three impossibles. I was pleased to see that your second epigraph that you put um, is a Nelson Mandela quote. It always seems impossible until it's done. And that really is, in a sense, what this story is about. The three impossibles, but if you
0: manage it, then they've become possible. So Was this the starting point for your story? When I was writing it, it actually wasn't in my mind at all. It appeared when I was halfway through my first draft. And after that, everything fell into place. The Three Impossibles is a book, uh, which Mim finds in the library. It is a book about alchemy. And... Alchemy is an art which was practiced many hundreds of years ago all over the world. It's an art which has been very much misunderstood, particularly in our contemporary times. I think many people think of alchemy as the art of turning base metal into gold, whereas actually alchemy was something much more mysterious, much more complex, and much more inspirational. It's not just about turning metal into gold, but the alchemists used to use a lot of symbols and imagery to hide their secrets so that the whole thing was very, very impenetrable to most people, to the layperson. So Mim finds this book and inside the book she will gradually find the three quests that she needs to go on. She has to solve these impossibles in order to save the alchemist's granddaughter who also suffered from the curse. Um, and she also needs to save the alchemist himself. And I think the point of it all for me is that often we can literalize things or concretize things or materialize things. So that, for example, if you long to have some more spirit in your life, then you might actually, if you were literalizing it, you might start drinking spirits. And I think that's what we often do. And if we're, if we're not in contact with the mysterious and the complex and the uncertain. And Trismegistus McWhisker, the alchemist, wants to use alchemy for its highest purpose, which is via love. He wants to save his granddaughter who has been cursed. He's not interested in making gold, but the king and Madame Marionette are total literalizers. They are only interested in gold. They are greedy for it it 's all they care about, so I guess the whole um fight in the story in a way is between things that are uncertain, things that are mysterious, things that look impossible but actually aren't, and the quest for something which will actually just satisfy you in the immediate gratification, like gold. You talk about
1: immediate gratification. There's another lesson that MIM has to learn. It's not just about curiosity. It's also about patience and looking and waiting and finding the right moment.
0: Absolutely right. Yes, um, MIM is a very excitable um, Excitable girl, she she wants to follow her curiosity and, and it's very alive for her. But what she does learn from being around Trismegistus McQuister or MAC for short um, is to learn to be patient, to wait a little. And I think that's another impossible in the story, really, because it seems impossible to be able to wait when you have a countdown to having to solve three quests. And if you don't solve them within a certain amount of time, then somebody's going to get killed because that's what Mim is facing. Um, so she actually has to do what appears to be impossible for her, which is to learn to be patient. Mm.
1: There's a moment where, uh, again, I'm not going to say too much about it, where she would like to be getting on with the quest and she has to wait in spite of this countdown. For six whole hours. It's the only way that it's going to happen. That would have been torture for me and for her.
0: (laughs) It really is. Yeah. Although she is very tired because she hasn't slept for 24 hours before that. So she needs the time to sleep in at least. Absolutely.
1: And in some sense, the, the book element of it reminded me a little of The Sorcerer's Apprentice. And of course, his mistake is that
0: he's impatient. That's interesting. I, I don't even remember the story of the Sorcerer's Apprentice. So, ah, OK. <laughs> Here's an alchemist's apprentice in,
1: in a sense. Yeah. So can I just ask, are there going to be other stories in this world that you've created now or is it a standalone story?
0: It was written as a standalone story and it is a standalone story. Um Various people have said that they would like to find out more, which has delighted me. Actually, I think that's lovely. But I do tend to write standalones, uh, so yeah, I'm actually in the middle of another standalone now. Are you able to tell us anything about that, or is it uh, completely under wraps? <laughs> no, I can. I can say a bit because I'm almost at the end of the first draft now. But it's um, while you're actually writing it that it, you you mustn't talk it away. <laughs> um, it's a contemporary story this time, like School for Nobody's my last one. And um, it's got ecological overtones. But once again, I'm using plastic in this particular case as an image for homogeneity. So my heroine wants to be just the same as everybody else at the beginning of the story. And she learns over the course of it to celebrate her own difference and her own individuality.
1: That sounds like another great story, Susie. I can't wait to read that one. I thoroughly enjoyed The Three Impossibles. It was page turning and thought provoking. But essentially, I just felt I'd read a really nice story that had that classic feeling of fairy tale about it, but was doing something fresh with the fairy tale. So thank you so much for talking to me today in the Reading Corner and just giving us a little bit of a spotlight onto The Three
0: Impossibles. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been great fun. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.